turn together to the book of Genesis, chapter 50. We're going to pick up where we left off this morning, beginning in verse 15. So Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. And this is the word of God. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, Joseph lived a hundred and ten years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir and the son of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So one mark of a good story is that it ends well. It might be a happy ending, it might be a sad ending. But a good ending is always just that, good. Justice prevails. Righteousness wins. Evil is defeated. Our hearts resonate with a story that ends rightly. And when a story doesn't end rightly, we put down the book or leave the movie theater or the play feeling incomplete. It doesn't sit right with us. I would suggest that this is because of the inherent sense of right and wrong that God has placed inside of every human being. And I would suggest that stories that don't end rightly feel weird to us because we ourselves are a part of a story that does end well. The ultimate story, the one that you and I are a part of, is one conceived in the mind of the Trinity, being worked out by their mighty power. 
And at the end of this story, righteousness prevails. God wins. The story, history, that we are a part of has all the elements of a gripping story. There is moral failure. There is danger. There are enemies and a fierce battle being waged. At the same time, there is a bridegroom pursuing his bride, saving her from the dragon, sacrificing himself. He rises again. He brings her to himself. He makes her clean. He defeats all their enemies. And in the end, they live happily ever after. Well, I would submit to you that Genesis also has a wonderful ending. Genesis is just a part of the larger story of history, but but within this story of Genesis, we have a good ending. It wraps up everything we've been seeing regarding the patriarchs and Joseph and his brothers. It ends looking forward to the next step of redemptive history, namely the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. It ultimately points to that great ending, which will come when Jesus returns. That ending, of course, will not be the end at all, just the beginning of a glorious eternity. What I want us to do tonight is marvel at the ending of Genesis that God has given us, and I want us to marvel at it through four observations. Each of these observations should encourage us. Each of these observations should challenge us. So four observations about this last passage in the book of Genesis. And first, I want us to observe that Joseph's brothers are now servants of the true God. Joseph's brothers are now servants of the true God. So look at verses 17 and 18. The the brothers are anxious that their father's death might now mean that Joseph is going to turn against them. They are afraid that Joseph's forgiveness towards them was all for show. And now that dear old dad is gone, maybe now Joseph is going to get his revenge. And so they they come to Joseph, but first they send a messenger to him. In verses 17 and 18, they tell the messenger what to say, that which they claimed that their father had told them to say. Namely, verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. From the very beginning of this story, I have been insisting that though Joseph is often in the spotlight in Genesis 37 through 50, these chapters are as much about his brothers as they are about him. This is the story of the beginning of the entire nation of Israel all 12 tribes. Indeed, this is a story about God using one brother, the one that was hated, the one that was abused, the one that was sold into slavery. And God uses the one to ultimately save the lives and the souls of those who abused Him. 
We've seen the lives of these brothers saved. The famine is over. They've been well provided for. They've been well cared for. Indeed, as the Egyptians became almost slaves to their own Pharaoh during the famine, we found that Joseph's brothers were protected and were almost miraculously blessed during the time of famine. But we also have even more evidence here to what we've already seen to show that through all of this, God was saving their very souls. We see here their confession of sin. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. They are echoing the words of their father, but clearly they believe them to be true. Unbelievers tend to excuse sin or to celebrate sin, but we have here humble confession of sin We also have the humbling of these brothers themselves. They come before Joseph. They fall down before him. They declare themselves to be his servants. They know that God has given Joseph authority over them. And they know that Joseph would be right to pursue justice for what they did to him. But what I find most striking of all all is that they call themselves the servants of the God of your father. In other words, part of their appeal to the mercy of Joseph is that they too are now, like him, servants of Jacob's God. They are brothers with him through blood, but they are also claiming to be brothers with him through faith, a part of the greater family of God. The commentaries say that they are simply seeking to play on Joseph's religious sensibilities, and that's probably true, But I don't think these brothers would be claiming to be servants of the true God if they thought that Joseph didn't really believe that. And so we have even more evidence here that that is indeed the case. And these latter chapters have given us good reason to believe that they have become servants of the true God. And indeed the humility that we see in them in these last paragraphs lend more weight to that. Now don't get me wrong. I think these brothers were probably still very much infants in the faith. These brothers were converted later in life than Joseph, for sure. They didn't have the same abundance of means of grace that you and I have today. We live in a day of even greater grace. But it is nevertheless remarkable to me to see how God has taken these men from what they used to be to a place where they now say we are the servants of the God of our Father. What is the encouragement for us here? Well, it is that God can and regularly does save even the unlikeliest of people. I told you at the beginning of this study that that was one of the grand themes of Genesis 37 through 50. God saves even the unlikeliest of people. And we've kind of seen this again and again and again. And so here at the end, I want to make sure we see it one more time. God can and often does save those people we think are too far gone. Dear friends, there is no one that you know living in this world who is beyond the reach of the grace of God. There is no one you know whose heart is too hard for God's gospel to penetrate. There are no eyes so blind that God cannot give sight, no will so stubborn that God cannot subdue it, no sins so great that God cannot bring forgiveness and new life. The God of the Bible is a God who gives us much reason for hope. 
concerning those we love and their eternal state. So if that's the encouragement, here is the challenge. Don't give up praying and witnessing, even to the most hardened of sinners. Once a person has died, there is nothing more we can do for them. And we cannot infallibly know whether someone who has died really believed or not. And and sometimes we have to bury folks that we love with, with doubts in our mind about their salvation. We do know that God will do what is right. But until that day that those we love are gone, as long as there is still breath in them, we still have reason for hope. We need to know the power of the gospel, which is the power of the Holy Spirit to take the message of Christ crucified and to save even those that we would think, there's just no way. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And dear friends, is there any one of us in this room who would have believed apart from the powerful working of God on our souls? Every one of us was once a hardened sinner. So let us believe there are none beyond God's ability to save. That's observation one. Observation number two is this. God's sovereign hand works all things for the good of His people. Now, this is the central truth of these chapters. This is what we think of when we think of Genesis 37 through 50. We think of the doctrine of the providence of God. God's sovereign hand works all things for the good of His people. Genesis 37 through 50 is a dramatic illustration, a historical illustration of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is the doctrine. We know that for those who love God, all things work for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's, that's the doctrine. But Genesis 37-50, through 50, that's God saying, let me show you how this works. And He gives us a vivid picture of that doctrine played out in real life. By the way, Genesis 37-50 through 50 is not only a vivid illustration of how Romans 8.28 is true, But it's also a vivid illustration of how it remains true even when circumstances are so bad that it looks like it isn't true. How hard it must have been for Joseph to understand what God might be up to as he marched across the desert in chains to Egypt. How hard it must have been for him in that prison to continue trusting his God and thinking that God had a a good plan for him. How hard it must have been for Jacob when he heard that the one son whom he knew to be a believer, the one son that probably he thought through him the Messiah would come, that one son whom he had put above the rest because of his godliness and integrity, that one son is attacked by an animal and killed. It sure seemed like Romans 8.28 wasn't true then. It's in moments like those that our faith in the promises of God are tested. Will you believe in the providence of God now? But Joseph sums it all up for us in Genesis 50, verse 20. There's hardly a more important verse that can be found in the whole of the Bible on the doctrine of God's providence. 
As he says this, Joseph is still wiping tears from his eyes. He's, he is weeping because he loves his brothers and he is saddened that they doubt his love for them. Or perhaps he is moved by their humility as they come and, and bow down before him and he, he sees their contrite and, and penitent hearts, but he's, he's weeping and we're told he wipes the tears from his eyes and he, and he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So yes, brothers, you meant evil, but there was a deeper intention than yours. You intended one thing, but there is a grander intention working through the history of this world and the actions of men. It's all here. God has a purpose. And His sovereign hand, Joseph says, has brought that purpose to pass. And He has worked even through your terrible sins. In the verse before, verse 19, Joseph exclaims, Am I in the place of God? Meaning, I am in no place to kick against what God has ordained. If you want forgiveness, seek forgiveness from God. If you want to fear somebody, fear God. Don't fear me. I am not in God's place. Everything that you did to me, brothers, was a part of God's sovereign plan that this day would come about. He says, I may be powerful and honored in the Middle East, but I am not God. It's God that ordained these things. And He ordained them for our good. Mount Hermon, all of us who believe on Jesus Christ have great reason to be encouraged by this doctrine. The doctrine of God's providence means that we are safe and secure in the hands of God. We are greatly blessed. Nothing happens, nothing, nothing, nothing happens in this world, in the entire history of this world, that isn't ultimately for our good. we know Christ. I love the way the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism talks about this. The first question says, what is your only comfort in life and death? Think about that. What is your only comfort in life and death? How would you answer that? What is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Can you say that? Can can you say, here is where my comfort comes from. Here is where my peace and joy in this life comes from. 
I have a Savior who purchased me with His blood. He loves me, and I live in His love, and He is a sovereign Savior. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him, and nothing will happen that is not subservient to His purpose of bringing me safely to heaven. Absolutely nothing. Indeed, not a hair can fall from my head apart from my Father's will. Not one fly gets swatted dead in a home in Bangladesh, except that God has appointed it to be so as a part of His plan for your salvation and His glory. The big things are ordained. The little teeny things are ordained. They are all ordained by God for our good. And so friends, if you are God's, you are safe and secure. You might die in a car accident tonight, but even that car accident cannot tear your soul away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Indeed, it will only serve to usher your soul into the the very presence of King Jesus. Everything that happens, everything that happens, appointed for our good. And so if that's the encouragement, here is the challenge. Put away all anxiety and worry from your life. Stop fretting. Stop running things over and over again in your mind. I don't know about this. How is this going to work out? What am I going to do about that? Stop and rest in the sweet security that is yours in Christ Jesus. Trust your sovereign Father who cherishes you dearly. Embrace the kind of security that that can so free you from worrying about yourself that you can now give yourself to serving others. I mean, that's, that's really the effect of this doctrine. When we believe in the providence of God, it so assures us about our well-being that I am safe and secure in the arms of God that I can stop fretting about my life and my issues and I can begin to have a greater eye out for what can I do to show the love of God to others. I become not so self-obsessed, not so self-consumed, but I can begin to say, all right, now that I am safe and secure, how can I live today? To point others to that same security. The effect of this doctrine when it gets a hold of you can be tremendous. I hear stories of people who sell their homes, move to the poorest, darkest, most difficult parts of their towns, eager to be a light, in a rough and difficult neighborhood. Stories of people quitting well-paying jobs, taking jobs where they will hardly get by so that they can be somewhere where God will more greatly use them for His name's sake. William Carey said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Well, attempting great things for God often means risk. It often means doing things that at first seem unwise. It often means doing things that put us in harm's way. But then the doctrine of providence comes along. And we feel the arms of God around us. And we say, you know what? I can attempt great things for God because though the circumstances with these eyes may look scary. I look with the eyes of faith. And my God is in control. And not one hair of this head, I know there's not much left, point somebody else's head, not one hair of this head is going to fall off unless God says for it to fall off. Now that's comforting, church. That is encouraging. So don't worry. Don't fret. Observation number three. 
Joseph is a fantastic example of true forgiveness. Of true forgiveness. The setup to this is the fear that the brothers now have about how Joseph is going to treat them now that their father Jacob is gone. In fact, go back and look at verse 15 with me. You see verse 15? When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Notice that even in their conversation with themselves, they are acknowledging that what they did was evil. They are acknowledging the wickedness of what they did. This is just more evidence of their conversion and of their change. But note also that word hate. Perhaps now Joseph will hate us. That word in the Hebrew literally means to bear a grudge. To hold a grudge against somebody. And it's really interesting that they use that word now. Maybe Joseph is going to hold a grudge against us. Because it's the exact word used in Genesis 37.4 at the very beginning of the study to describe how the brothers were treating Joseph. That is, literally, the brothers were holding a grudge against Joseph because of the special love that his father showed to him. And so now, they used to treat him this way. They used to hate their brother. And they're saying, now that that our father is gone, will Joseph respond in kind? Will he treat us now the way we used to treat him? Will he get his revenge? As they come and they bow before Joseph, we can't help but remember yet again those dreams in Genesis 37. How Joseph had dreamed that there would be a day when his brothers would come and bow themselves before him. And now that dream has come true again and again and again. And here it is again. The brothers had scoffed at him for those dreams. They had mocked him for those dreams. They had hated him for those dreams. And now it is they who willingly come and bow before him. And Joseph continues to respond towards them with complete forgiveness. The reason that I call Joseph an example of true repentance is that his forgiveness towards his brothers illustrates some of the key aspects of forgiveness as it ought to be practiced by us. So, for example, we learn that his forgiveness in the past was not just a show. Joseph had not just been being kind to his brothers because dear old dad was still alive. He was not treating his brothers well for the sake of his old father's heart. No, he really did love them. And he provided for them and he cared for them and he he put their family under the special protection of Pharaoh himself, not just because he loved his dad, but because he truly forgave them and loved them. His forgiveness was sincere and authentic, not a show. In fact, notice, it is the brothers who are bringing up their sin again. Joseph's not bringing their sin back up and and putting it in their face. They're the ones bringing it back up. So often we claim to forgive, and yet what we really do is just store what the person did to us in the back of our hearts and minds so that we can bring it back up to use it against them later. Well, if there was ever a time where we thought, all right, now Joseph's going to bring it back up, it's now. Even the brothers are thinking, all right, maybe now he's going to bring it back up. But he doesn't. He truly forgave. Aren't we glad that our God isn't like that? That our God doesn't store up the things that we've said and done, and He says, oh, you're forgiven, but then a little bit later, He throws it back at us, us, right? Remember when you did that? 
No, our God says that He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. They will never come back to hunt us again. It's Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. Your sins are torn from you forever. They have been scrubbed from your account. The Bible says that they have been buried in the deepest parts of the ocean. They're down in the Mariana Trench where you can never get them back up again. Y'all know how deep the Mariana Trench is out there in the Pacific Ocean? Deepest part of the world? You can take Mount Everest, put it in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean, and there's still 7,000 feet between the peak of Mount Everest and the surface of the water. When you put something down there, you're not drudging it back up again. And God says that's where He has taken our sins. They are gone. They are gone. They are gone. And that's how we ought to forgive. Right? Jesus took our sins, nailed them to a tree. There they are forever. They're paid for. They're gone. When we forgive, we ought to forgive once and for all. Joseph also chose not to use his brother's sin against him for personal gain. And he could have done that. Because here they are at his feet. And they've just said, we are your servants. We're yours. We know we've done wrong to you. What are you going to do with us? And he could have found a way to turn this for his own selfish purposes. He could have enslaved them for for their labor. He could have taken their possessions to make them his own. He could have used their sin against him as a means to now capitalize and serve himself. But he doesn't. In fact, we're told that he spoke kindly to them. He comforted them. On top of all this, he continues to sacrifice on their behalf. He ensures that they are truly provided for, that their families are provided for. He continues to show them practical, acted-out love. Not just love in word, but love in deed. The encouragement for us, church, is to remember that Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers is a picture for us of God's forgiveness of us through Jesus. That you and I have been greatly forgiven of sins far worse than that of these brothers. They sinned against a fellow man. But friends, we sin against God. We have trampled the laws of God. We trampled the laws of a holy, holy, holy God who is worthy of infinite love and devotion. We deserve an eternity in hell. And yet our sins are not held against us. Our record of wrongs is erased. The righteousness of Christ has been written into our record. We ought to rejoice in the great forgiveness we've received. And the challenge to us is this. Having been forgiven much, forgive much. Having been forgiven much, forgive much. Because sins against you will never amount to anything close to the guilt you had before Almighty God. And if God was willing to forgive you all that much, are we willing to forgive those who sin against us as well? Forgive little sins. Forgive big sins. Let us forgive and forgive and forgive. How many times did Jesus say? Seventy times seven. 
And he didn't mean keep account to see when you get to that point. He meant keep forgiving and keep forgiving. The same spirit of forgiveness that is in our God ought to characterize us. And then there's our fourth observation. Joseph is a fantastic example of one who died in faith. He is a fantastic example of one who died in faith. Like his father, that's the reason he wants his body to be taken back to Canaan. Not now. Rather, he says God is going to fulfill his promise. God is going to bring Israel out of Egypt back to Canaan. And Joseph says, then, when this nation comes out of Egypt, I want them to carry my bones with them and bury me in the promised land. It was Joseph who, in the providence of God, brought Israel to Egypt. And now he wants to be with Israel when they leave Egypt. We know that this request of his, that he, his bones be taken back up to Canaan, This request of his is rooted in faith. And we know that because of one verse in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Referring to Joseph, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. In other words, it was his trust in the promise of God that is on display here. Friends, I hope that you and I will die in such a way that it will be obvious to everyone around us that we are clinging to the promises of God. God's promise that our spirit will be with Him the moment it leaves these bodies. God's promise that all of our trials and troubles in this world can hardly compare to the glory we're going to have when we see our Father's face. God's promise that death is not the end for these bodies. God's promise that our death day will prove to be a greater day than our birth day? Will you die trusting these kinds of promises? Will you be able, if God gives you the ability to speak last words to your, your, your family, your children, your grandchildren, maybe your great-grandchildren, will you be able to, to speak to them about these things and say, oh, family, do not weep for me. If you only knew where I'm going, you would not weep for me. You would praise God and you would be jealous. Will your family see you die in faith? This just occurred to me. Both Jacob and Joseph gave commands to their families about what to do with them after death that illustrated their faith. When we die, what instructions will we give to our families about things like funeral? What will your funeral say, not mainly about you, but about your God? That's something to think about. We should all go home and, and boy, what a happy thought. These are full of happy thoughts today, right? Oh, we should all go home and just, just in case something happens tomorrow, what would you want your funeral to look like so that it would be truly a testimony? to the God that you trusted. And that way you could give those instructions. You could have those instructions for your family. Okay. Joseph died trusting in the promises of God. And God, by the way, kept his promise. Israel did leave Canaan. And they did take the bones of Joseph with them. That's what the book of Exodus is about. They come back into the promised land. 
over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you get into the book of Joshua, and the bones of Joseph are buried. Mount Hermon, the encouragement for us is this. God keeps His promises, even if we don't see them fully realized in this life. Indeed, if we go back and look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, if we look at the 12 sons, and particularly Joseph, they were all trusting God for big promises that didn't fully come true in their lives. Indeed, they didn't mostly come true in their lives. They believed that it would be later, and so it is with us. The greatest promises God has given to us are promises that we can't fully see right now. Will we die being able to say, you know what? I've seen little fulfillments in this life, but I'm still trusting God for the big fulfillment to come. And you know what the biggest one is. The promise that we will get to look upon our Lord Jesus Christ and love Him and worship Him forever. Will we die saying, you know what, it hasn't happened yet, but I think it's getting ready to happen. That's how we want to die. The challenge then is to know the promises of God, to love the promises of God, and to trust them. You can't love them and trust them if you don't know them. So know them. Know the promises of God more deeply than you know your own name. Know the promises of God as they are given to you in the Bible. And then swim in them. Live in them. Let them be the fuel of your worship and your obedience and your life. That's what it means to be people of faith. So, I mentioned at the beginning that Genesis has a wonderful ending. I think it does, but I want to say something else too here at the end. In verse 24, Joseph uses a phrase that is very important. He speaks of the oath that God swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And those are the words he uses. That's the phrase, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And it's used here for the very first time, but it's about to be used a lot. Because through the rest of the Old Testament, we will see that phrase come up again and again and again and again to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You see, everything that comes next in the Old Testament, right? We're getting ready to get to the, in Exodus, there's the Mosaic or the the Old Covenant, right? What is that? It is a partial earthly fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we get to the new covenant, right? Jesus comes and there's the new covenant in his blood and he establishes it. And we have that that whole story going all the way till today, all the way till our Lord Jesus comes back. This is the new covenant. What is that? It is the coming to fruition. It is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Our Bibles are about this promise that he made to them. You have the Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. What are these about? God fulfilling his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Isn't it strange that God chose to work human history this way? That everything is being done to fulfill these promises that he made to three sinful, weak men. These were were not superheroes. Abraham was a pagan in Ur, worshiping the moon god. And God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a great promise. And the rest of human history is going to be about me keeping that promise to you. How strange is the working of God and how glorious. That's why I entitled this message, The Never-Ending Story. It doesn't stop with Genesis. Genesis is the foundation. Genesis is the beginning of the eternal story of God for us. We've talked before 
about how Genesis has ten sections. And each one of those sections begins with the words, these are the generations of. Right? And the last section, section ten, we've been in it all this time. It began in Genesis 37. These are the generations of Jacob. And immediately it tells us about those people that came from Jacob, namely Israel. And now it doesn't end at Genesis 50. All the way through the end of Malachi, we're learning about the generations of Jacob, the people that came from Jacob, this nation called Israel. Where does the next section begin? It begins at Matthew 1.1, where we have the Greek equivalent of that same phrase used of Jesus Christ. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, everything in the rest of the Old Testament and in the New Testament is built on the foundation of Genesis. And everything in the Old Testament is built on Genesis, looking forward to that Messiah that was promised in Genesis. And Jesus comes in Matthew and brings about the fulfillment. But he's not done yet. He's still working. He's still bringing to pass all that was promised. And he will come again and finish the great work. Now for now the book of Genesis ends with two words, in Egypt. That is where the nation of Israel was left at the end of this book. And that's where we're going to leave them for many months. For us, they're going to be in Egypt for many months. For them, it was something closer to 400 years. It's a long time. But for us, it'll be a few months. And then, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll watch our God bring Israel out of bondage across the Jordan, eventually, into the Promised Land. Let's pray.